Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. Hey, welcome back, Sarah. Yay, she's back. I thought there was someone else around the table. (laughs) So, friends, we've been doing a series in which we've been looking um, at various people from our our own traditions and then also from those outside of our traditions uh, in the history of the church. And so far, we've covered mostly men. And so today, we're going to spin that out and we're going to look at a couple ladies. So, Sarah, why don't you tell us who we're looking to looking at today. Yeah, so today we are looking at two women reformers. Um, The men tend to get all of the press because Mm -hmm. they're the ones that had easy access to publishing things. And denominations later named after them. (laughs) Yes, correct. Um, So, you know, there are a couple of obvious people that we could look at, like um, Katie Luther. But I think we've talked about her last Advent, so we're going to skip Katie Luther and we're going to talk about and I am sorry, I'm probably going to really butcher these names, but the first is Marie Dentier, I think, uh, who is French. She was born in the very late 1400s and was a nun for a while, similar to Katie Luther. She was Augustinian. Um, and But she left because, you know, she's a lady reformer and you don't tend to stay in the Catholic faith if you are a reformer. Um, but she left and she married Simon Robert, who was, like Martin Luther, a former priest. <laughs> so very similar to each other. Um, and they were considered kind of a clergy couple, an early clergy couple. Um, they accepted a joint pastoral assignment for the Reformed Church. Um, but then he, he died. And that was sad. Uh, they had two children uh, so she was quickly forced to find a new husband and she married Antoine Fromont Fromont, I don't know another very French sounding name and they moved to Geneva and he was also a priest type preacher type person Um, so much so that the Council of 200 banished him Uh, along with his wife and John Calvin in 1538. And so Marie was not going to stand for this, and she wrote a pamphlet. And she wrote it to the Queen of Navarre, and this is the name of the pamphlet. A very useful epistle composed by a Christian woman of Turani, which I think is her hometown, sent to the Queen of Navarre, sister of the King of France, against the Turks, Jews, infidels, false Christians, Anabaptists, and Lutherans. <laughs> wow, all that in a pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very long... Well, it, it was composed like a letter, um, very similar to Paul's letters, mm-hmm. but um, it is very, very lengthy, and she meant for it to be read by many, many people, not just the Queen. Sure. So it was... Uh, printed as a pamphlet okay. and distributed. Um, but when we're talking pamphlet, we're not talking trifold, fits in the pew rack at the church with n- clip art. We're talking no. something more like a short tract or something like that. Very much so. And yeah, like an open letter. That This is ostensibly yeah. addressed to the queen, but it's really meant to be a public letter that everybody could could read at the same time. Yes. Got it, okay? Yes. Um it's mostly against, it, like, it says that it's against the Turks, the Jews, infidels, false Christians, Anabaptists, and Lutherans. Like, it says all these people, but really, 
she meant Roman Catholics. That's mm-hmm. who uh, the false Christians are. She did, she didn't really want to name them like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's very much. She considers herself a Christian first and foremost, and basically anybody who doesn't exactly line up with her way of thinking is false Christian. Right. So, right, right. You know. Yes. Uh, and she's very very like set in her ways so much so that one time she was preaching on a street corner and John Calvin and some of his colleagues walked by and she just started berating them like John Calvin wrote about this in a letter to one of his friends about <laughs> this funny story happened and I'm and I'm going to tell you Formet's wife like just yelled at me in the street <laughs> and she apparently accused him and his friends of wearing long robes and was accusing them of being like the scribes that Jesus described uh, in Luke. So that's probably a biblical quote that the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. This might not have been literally about their fashion sense and yeah. she's accusing them of being pharisaical. Correct. But gotcha. like this is one of the few other cases where she appears in historical writings is by John Calvin, who is relating this funny story that happened to him the other day, (laughs) where she just yelled at him in the street. Wow. So, um, but yeah, so she's very much like, she, she doesn't even mind calling out John Calvin Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. doing stuff. And she seemed to like John Calvin because other than this epistle to the Queen of Navarre, the only other writing that we have that we suspect might be hers is she wrote a preface to one of John Calvin's sermons. Hmm. Um, it was for, he wrote a sermon on um, Timothy 2, uh, or the second chapter of Timothy, where uh, talking about, it was titled Sermon on the Modesty of Women in Their Dress. So referring back to First Timothy chapter 2, sorry. Um, and so, like her epistle, it was addressed to the Christian reader and signed MD, which is her initials. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, they, it has very similar language and use of language and term of phrase. So, scholars are pretty sure that she wrote it, but again, since she just signed it MD, it's sure. kind of possibly her, possibly could be somebody else, though. If you were going to play devil's advocate, though, like, it seems like it's less likely, uh that someone would want to incorrectly claim her mantle or authority because she didn't have a, a position of authority. Like, she right. she didn't have the stature of a John Calvin or Martin Luther that someone would want to write in her name and claim that authority. So it, it seems maybe more likely, if it's got her initials, it's not someone borrowing her authority. Like It, it wouldn't be somebody borrowing her, her, her authority. It would be more of somebody who just happens the to same, have the same, same initials. initials. Sure, sure, sure. So possible in that case, but not, not as much like uh, someone writing in someone else's name or something like that. Correct, okay, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's not somebody trying to be her. It's, it's not pseudepigrapha, in other words. No. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. No. But, uh, so, this epistle, though, is very, very long and quite significant. Uh, it, she had 400 copies made. Um, but, again, since it was mostly attacking the Roman Catholic Church and the clergy, uh, it was quickly cons- cons- it was taken away and burned. <laughs> that word, whatever that is. Confiscated. Yes, that word. Um, G- given the old Viking funeral. <laughs> but this, uh, it was really long. 
and it contained over 200 biblical references in the margins. Hmm. It was 65 pages. Wow. Yeah, so it was a very substantial piece of work, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she was very much showing that she had she knew the Bible well enough to back up all of her, mm-hmm. all of the things that she was saying. It wasn't that she was just long-winded and writing to the queen about how unfair it was that John Calvin and her husband and her and other people were banished. It was, she actually knew what she was she brought talking the about. Right. So she starts by just greeting the queen and um, wishing the queen would intervene on Calvin and everybody to King Francis, her brother. Um, and she also identifies two groups of women in this introduction as her intended audience besides the queen. Those in captivity, where the the Reformed Church is currently being persecuted, and poor little women just wanting to know the truth. Hmm, interesting. And I think truth as in capital T. Right, right, right. Truth of Christ and, yeah. And she does acknowledge the 1 Timothy 2, um saying that women shouldn't have authority and shouldn't be Mm -hmm. speaking. And on that matter, she just says, For what God has given you and revealed to us women, no more than men should we hide it and bury it in the earth. For even though we are not permitted to preach in public in congregations and churches, we are not forbidden to write and admonish one another in all charity. Hmm. So she was kind of getting away with the whole women should be silent Uh by saying... We're not talking to men right now. Uh We're talking to each other. That's clever. And knowing that it's a public letter, this is going to get read by whomever it's going to get read by. And this is at an age where because of things like the printing press, her ideas can be disseminated and she can still at the same time be technically follow. Oh, I'm I'm not disobeying that teaching from the scriptures. I'm not publicly preaching. I'm writing a letter. That's clever. Yeah. I'm writing a letter to other women. Right, right, right. right. That's all and, my audience. And if men is. read it, you know, I can't stop them. <laughs> because I have no authority right, over that. Right, I can't tell them not to read. <laughs> and, I, and I kind of, since we know that she was preaching on a street corner at least once, mm-hmm. if that was her similar thing of, I'm ignoring Steve over here, you know, hi, Erica, <laughs> I am talking to you right now. You are, you know, you should strive to do this and be this and blah, 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 blah. If you listen, whatever, I don't mm-hmm. care. And it's a street mm-hmm. corner. It's not in a church right, building. Right, right, right. So that she's getting, too. So she's getting right. that as well. She's, right. a, she's a clever lady. That's clever. Um, but she follows her introduction by another short section that she calls Defense of Women. And that continued this... Um, there was a tradition in like the 14th century where you either uh, defended or persecuted women, essentially. They're either awesome like women are like the pinnacle of morals or they're inherently evil and so she's very much taking the stance of you know eve wasn't just a temptress who led adam into sin but Mm -hmm. you know or just because eve did it doesn't mean that we're all temptresses all women um So she structures her argument using only biblical women, and she lists, like, basically all of the women in the Bible who ever did anything not evil. (laughs) So she 
you know, refers to Sarah and Rebecca and the mother of Moses and Deborah and Ruth and even the Queen of Sheba, who I can't even point to where she is in the Bible or exactly what the Queen of Sheba did, but... It's a brief appearance with King Solomon and that's her cameo. Well, Marie knows about her. (laughs) And she's not afraid to, like, point this out. She also then goes and talks about the Virgin Mary and Elizabeth and Mary Magdalene and, and... Again, just basically names all of the women of the Bible who did anything good mm-hmm. that God used them and is pointing out God uses has used women in the past. What's stopping God from using women now? Hmm. And she was very intentional in this section that she uses the words preach and women preacher. And it seems to indicate that she believes that women should not only be allowed to preach in private, again private, but also in public. To both men and women, openly before everyone. Hmm. So she was of the opinion that women should and could do this. Right, and yet was willing in the way she executed that to have that sort of clever, I'm just I'm preaching on the street corner ostensibly to women so that she wasn't... Uh, so that she wasn't in it, like disturbing the peace, and yet was making her case, and that she could say this is, and she was, mm-hmm. she could say, I'm still abiding within the boundaries that have been set before me, and yet, yeah, advocating that everybody should listen to her. That's clever. Yeah. So that was only five pages of the 65 document. <laughs> it is taken up with that part. The rest of it is much more extensive. It's, um, she does claim the Bible as her authority and source of her Christian doctrine. Um, so her faith in Christ alone, uh, she believes, is the only means of salvation. So the rest of it is she's warning against false prophets, against images, the saints, pilgrimages, mm-hmm. and indulgences, and attacks uh, transubstantiation uh, in the Catholic Mass. Mm-hmm. So basically the rest of it is about how the Catholic Church is currently abusing their power and authority and how they just have stuff wrong. So interesting how, like, I mean, and she's obviously living not only in the same time period as a John Calvin, but clearly in some of the same circles at some point, that some of those points of her calls for reform overlap with what you could see in what becomes Calvinism. Yeah. And it, it, maybe she doesn't want to admit it, but there's a lot of similarity that Lutherans have there. I mean, there's there's uh, a lot of points of continuity reforms that Luther was calling for and Calvin. Um, they sort of take different directions, but even though she wants to rail against those wicked Lutherans in her treatise, there's some similarities there. Um, yeah. But she's not just parroting what Calvin is saying, or not just parroting what Zwingli or, or Luther would have been saying, but her whole piece about the importance of uh, women's leadership and making a biblical case for it, um, you don't find as loud uh, 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 an argument for that out of uh, Martin Luther or uh, I, I'm not thinking Wesley either or Wesley a, a little bit just I think because of his mother. Sure. Well, and I mean, like personally, they might, but like I, as far as in their but, writings or no, readings, I mean, you don't have a whole lot, at least that I'm aware of, in Wesley's writings. But I mean, I hear a lot of Susanna coming out. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like I, I see a lot of connections between Susanna Wesley, John and Charles' mother, and and Marie here, just the way. She went about teaching, mm-hmm, you know, the kids mm-hmm. and, and doing things. The early Methodist movement had women preachers, right. but like you said, it's not like um, they they were there to lead societies and classes and bands, but not in not a whole lot of like pushing mm-hmm. for that in writings of Wesley. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what are things that stand out to you, Sarah, as you as you think of of her story? What are things that that um, particularly, I guess, like, continue to speak to you or feel like they are particularly powerful for you? Well, I think that this point in history that Marie lived in 
was so interesting because, like, the church was changing. Like, it was no longer just the Roman Catholic Church mm-hmm. is the big player on the block mm-hmm. and you kind of have to just fit yourself in this mold. But now suddenly there are reformers and the reformers are breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church and there are other churches that you could participate in and be in. And so it's it's women like marie who's saying hey in these new churches there need to be a space for me Mm -hmm. that god can use me and not in the just traditional sense of being a nun and Mm -hmm. being in a convent which she had experienced right where she you know would pray and read the read the bible apparently she read it enough to be able to quote it Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. crazy um but that she also had a voice, and God could use that voice. And so she was trying to carve out a space for her and women like her. And, you know, partly I'm not entirely sure that she was successful because she isn't super well-known. Mm-hmm. And it took a really long time for women to be able to be pastors because that's essentially what she wanted and kind of thought of herself as not so much pastor maybe but a preacher and you know it took a really long time for women's ordination to come into effect but as a woman preacher being able to look back at not so much lutheran history but protestant history and being Mm -hmm. able to point to her and going look like this is hard being one of the first women pastors or preachers like you know we're still in like Women have been ordained in the Lutheran Church for 50 years now, Mm -hmm. um, which is a long time in the sense that that's longer than I've been alive, but also still within living memory of many of our people in our pews. But being able to point back to her and saying, look, 500 years ago, this woman lived and breathed and worked and did ministry. Mm -hmm. So our history isn't just in the last 50 years, but longer. Yeah. It's interesting to me, like, uh, in, in hearing you describe the kinds of arguments she makes, there are some things that seem like they're very much uh, in line with the things that were in in the air in other branches of the Protestant Reformation. Like the fact that her uh, appeals for her arguments are biblical quotations and scriptures rather than uh, church fathers or uh, papal decrees or church count. Like part of of what happens in the 16th century is uh, going back to what what does the scripture say, not just what do so-and-so church council say Mm -hmm. or what did Pope so-and-so say. So she's on board with that. If I'm going to make my my case, I'm going back to the source that is our normative source for authority. So there's something very... Uh, Protestant generally about about that that appeal, um, but that also she's got this sense of part of the reforms that need to be called for are not just let's go back to the scriptures, but let's listen from the scriptures that uh, women can be appointed and raised up mm-hmm. by God to be used uh, for the for the service of the the whole. It's interesting as you raise this question of her using the language of women as preachers, and that the church was kind of wrestling with. What are the roles for what? Do, what do we need our leaders to be? You know, in medieval Catholicism, the 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 priest role isn't really all that cut up with preaching. Yeah, there's there's ostensibly some kind of a sermon. It might be in Latin anyway, um, but that's not the heart. The heart of the mass is the the Eucharistic liturgy, the communion liturgy, and because of the theology of the time, it's about we need to keep re-sacrificing Christ to atone for our ongoing sins, and it was way 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 less about Here's how you ought to live out your faith day by day. It was you know, so the role of the, of the 
the cleric is different, and she seems to be tapping into, again, you could say the Luthers, the Calvins, the Wesleys are, are moving in this similar way, but as, as you get different church bodies breaking off and becoming these new entities, they even have to kind of refigure out what do our leaders do? Are they mostly just like sacramental people? Are they people who are mostly preachers? And what, what, how do you, how do you decide who has to be set apart for that. Like in a way when she taps into all those biblical figures, so many of those biblical figures she names, the the, the women of the, the Bible who were led rarely do they have a priestly role because again there aren't women priests in the ancient Levitical code mm-hmm. but there are folks who fill that prophetic role um, and do have official leadership roles and and the, it seems to me one of the cool things about ancient Israel's tradition of prophets is most of the time they weren't professionally educated or part of the official class they're just people who the spirit said like you go mm-hmm. go speak and that gave them authority to, like even if the institutions didn't recognize your authority if the spirit said speak you got to speak you know and that there was something that was like this like this ace up god's sleeve that even if the institutions get corrupt or even if the institutions won't listen god reserves the right to keep raising up prophets and that could be you know men like amos or jeremiah or uh, isaiah or it could be women like hold the prophetess or deborah or whomever else um, and that as Marie is trying to figure out here what her role is, she seems to also appeal not just so here's what the Bible said, but also God reserves the right to keep raising up people even if the mm-hmm. institutions mm-hmm. haven't caught up to it yet. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you make of in the, the, that lengthy title of her pamphlet where she like itemizes people this is writing against. Um, at, at first blush, that seems to me like, oh my goodness, that's embarrassing how antiquated that sounds. And yet, on the other hand, I feel like you read anything of a Martin Luther and he can be just as belligerent, if not more so, when he's yeah. calling... So, like, I, it, it, as you read off that title, it felt like, well, that's a long title. But in a way, it's not really any different from uh, the, the polemical, angry kind of language that other reformers have, too, in their day. It, it's interesting to me... Um, I guess I guess what I'm wondering is like how do we how do we learn from and hold on to that that legacy and that uh, the good things that voices like Marie's and other reformers have, but also know that sometimes there can come an edge when you're so sure you've got the truth that like and everybody else going to hell like it is so easy mm-hmm. to to move from I have something to say to not only do I have something to say, but nobody else has anything important. To, like, how do we hold those together? And no, that's not—that's clearly not just an issue for for uh, Marie here, but for uh, Luther, who regularly will like you know will rail against the people who he thinks are all you know wrong and why they're of the devil. Yeah, I think if anything, the fact that that was her title and she also had no problem in mimicking Mm -hmm. the male reformers is she was very well read on them. Sure. Like she Mm -hmm. was very much taking their information and all of their writings and just kind of absorbing it like a sponge. Yeah. And so she very well fit that same mold of being and writing and um, as well as taking it to heart. Like she had no problems condemning. Right basically anybody that was not her. Right, right, right. Well, it's, it's interesting. Like, one of the things... We talked about this a couple episodes back. Um, maybe it was when we were talking about Luther or, or Francis, about once the Protestant Reformation begins, for all the good things that any of these reformers have in mind, it also sets in motion a negative consequence that I don't think anybody intended, but that means that once, once you have one group that starts their own body saying, well, yep. we believe things differently, it becomes that much easier for the next group to come along and say, well, we agree like 95%, but it's on these other five things we don't agree on that now we're going to start a splinter group. And it's 
you know, we're all convinced we've all got the capital T truth and how easily now we won't even talk to each other because we can't agree on, you know, what color the liturgical pyramid should be for Advent or, you know, whatever. Um, and at what point, like, that, that, that becomes, I, I guess, a, a lamentable thing alongside the good things that mm-hmm. the reformers did. I, obviously, I say that as someone who was part of a reforming tradition that says it was a good move that, you know, Luther says the things he does and it's good, these reforms that were necessary... So, so the other person I wanted to talk oh, about, yeah. uh, Katharina Schutzel, uh, she was also married to a reformer, Matthew Zell, who is the one who actually converted her, uh, converted her away from Catholicism, because mm-hmm. she was also like dedicating her life and virginity mm-hmm. to God. Heard Matthew Zell preach about Martin Luther, and was all like, "Oh my gosh, everything he's saying clicks. It makes sense. God does love me." And I think I also kind of love this guy, Matthew Zell, and so we got married. But um, she later in her life, like, she she had written lots of things. She was very prolific. But at the end of her life, the majority of her things that she write, was writing was letters to the other reformers defending her own orthodoxy. Hmm. And so, like, she, um, in her writing, she wrote some texts on teaching on the Lord's Prayer, and she also wrote a preface to a hymnal. She preached a sermon called The Lament at her fun- her husband's funeral, like, and so we now have that in recording. And she wrote um, uh, private journals on the meditation of the Psalms. She loved the Psalms. But yeah, the last decade of her life, was spent just writing letters defending her orthodoxy in her previous writings because other reformers were, you know, kind of shaking their fingers at her about, you know, is can you be really writing these things? You're a woman. Hmm. Um, what could you possibly know? Hmm. And so, yeah, the last decade of her life was defending because other reformers were saying, hey, you aren't in line with what I'm thinking, therefore... Hmm. Are you really a true Christian? Yeah. She was basically saying, uh, yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah. By yeah. the way, also, I know the Bible, right. and I know such and such. I might not know Latin, but I do mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. I do know things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's my understanding, like, even maybe to some levels still today, priests have always been kind of like a step below, or sorry, not to have been a step below the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like, yeah. like, they just... yeah. People don't think that they know as much, they're not as educated as much, they're not as spiritual, you know. And maybe that's because there are priests, there, there are monks who are also priests and there are monks who are not. And so like monks and, and nuns would be sort of the parallel sort of movements. These are mm-hmm. monastics who, who live in communities or in isolation. You might also be a priest if you are a monk, but not necessarily, but yeah, there's been but, that sort of Because they didn't tier. go to that extra schooling and they haven't studied the, the right. Greek and the Hebrew and the Latin and all that. There's like this... Mm-hmm. And yeah. Katharina Schutzel wasn't even a nun. Mm-hmm. She had dedicated her life uh, to, to live a celib- celib- uh, yeah. celibate, celibate life. life, but she was going to do that in her own home. She mm-hmm. wasn't ever going to take actual but, I mean, vows. She, she but, was leading into that lifestyle, even if she didn't yes. take the vows. And yes. so I think, you know, to have these two women speak up and, and say, you know, okay, just because my anatomy doesn't match yours... Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just because I might not have the same level of education that you do um, doesn't mean that I'm any less of a Christian. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm any less called to do what God has called me to do, which, um, again, in this time period, I just huge props and respect to them because, yeah, 
you know, we just celebrated 50 years of ordination a couple years ago. So we're like 52, 53. I forget exactly where. I should know better <laughs> as a female pastor. But I only know ours because we're celebrating it. It's a round number. You know, um, but to think back and to know, because I didn't know these two women existed until you're telling us about them today, Sarah. And to know that women have been fighting for this for that long just makes that 50 years or the 50 plus years um, that much more meaningful to me to know that, you know, it took us a long time, but mm-hmm. all right, we, we've made it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to me, too, how, especially as you described uh, Marie's extensive biblical case for, for that she mm-hmm. made, that 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 for, for these particular reformers, their, their argument for why women's leadership was important wasn't to say, well, uh, we, need to, we need to change the rules and now allow women, but to say, really, God has allowed, has not only allowed, like it's asking a special favor of God, but that God in God's own divine choosing has chosen to work through women and men all throughout the biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those voices haven't been heard or given room to speak before. Um, but if we're going it, to, it's not about we need to now make special case for women to be allowed in, but mm-hmm. to say, reread the stories, reread the scriptures. Oh, there are women who've been a part of this story all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, part of what, what Marie's asking for is to say, I'm not, I'm not saying change the rules for me. I'm saying, listen to the story that you say is authoritative. All along, women have been a part of this. Um, and that, that that changes the conversation a little bit. I think, and that it it reminds me that even for people who are all convinced or all reading the same Bible, if if you aren't looking for something, you won't find it. It's, yeah. it's it's easy to miss things that are there if you've chosen not to recognize that they are there. And it's also easy to find things that may not be there. If, sure, sure. If you're yeah. determined to read them that way, yes. yeah, yeah. And in a way, like th- this, to me, gets uh, into like the bigger picture question that's a part of. Um, I think I think a really central question of the Protestant Reformation, even though we don't often think of it this way, and it's that so much of the Protestant Reformation across all the different branches, it's it's the question of how do how do we decide who or what has authority? That the, mm-hmm. the medieval Catholicism mm-hmm. approach answered it simply with, well, whatever the Pope says, that when mm-hmm. when they speak ex cathedra, the Pope is infallible. That's how we decide problem solved, and. I can understand why the the reformers said that doesn't really add up here. Um, but once we now say, okay, we got to go back to what the scriptures say, great, good, I'm with you. But we still haven't answered the question of what happens when we get a bunch of Christians in a room and they can't all agree about what the defining, you know, or I've got a stack of five Bible verses and you've got four Bible verses, but they're longer. Like we, we end up playing the same game. We just uh, have shifted where the authority questions lie, you know. Yeah. Um, and that, that makes it messy. There's something maybe fundamentally human about aching for, give me what the black and white answer is, and mm-hmm. I need the once and for all, you know, look in the back of the book, or who, who's the infallible source I have to go to to get the definitive answer. And the shift away from what you could say were the abuses of medieval papal Roman Christianity um, to move toward what happens in the Protestant Reformation. There's some problems you solve that way, but you open up other cans of worms mm-hmm. too there in that you end up with uh, women who have to write to other reformers saying, I've got the receipts. Here, here's my orthodoxy. You can say I believe the same things you do, and yet you, don't, you won't listen to me because I have uh, two X chromosomes. I mean, that, that it, it, we haven't really solved the problem of how do we make decisions together, how do we live together when we can't all agree. Um... Are there other things that that you would highlight for us 500 years after these uh, women who are reformers uh, about like ways they continue to speak to either you individually or your ministry or ministry for us in 21st century America? I think 
For me, studying the Bible and church history, it often has felt like in my life that God used women, these certain women in the Bible, just a handful of them, but God used them, so therefore God might use you now today. And then, you know, we hear about women in the past 50 years. And then there's this giant gray space of history where mm-hmm. we don't often hear of women. And But if you go looking, they're there. Yeah. God yeah. has continued using women, has been using women all throughout history. And I think it's important to occasionally remember them and share their stories because otherwise that gray area just keeps remaining gray for everybody mm-hmm. of this big, long stretch of silence. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you look, there are whispers of women. Yeah, Still, but- you know, even today, years later, that haven't been lost. And for every woman who has been lost, or that we still have, there's probably five more who's been lost. Mm-hmm. Who mm-hmm. We just don't know their stories anymore because they're... They either couldn't write, so their sphere of influence was very limited, or they could write, and their writings were burned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that that reminds me, too, of how much the moment in history makes it possible for like Marie's writings to be held on to, because you can print a pamphlet when you've got the printing press, mm-hmm. and now ideas can be disseminated mm-hmm. that others might have been saying in other circles, but prior to this technological leap, couldn't be couldn't get out faster than the church could burn them. You and, know? and Marie's pamphlet was burned. She had mm-hmm. 400 copies printed, and I think four survived. Mm. So of the 400, like, yeah. it's something like four or five. Like, it's a really small number is what survived and that we have today to you know, keep and hold yeah. on to. It's interesting to me, I, I, I don't want to get too, too much on a tangent, but it's interesting to me how, like, the, the moment our response to someone's speech or ideas is we must destroy and burn their writings rather than we can discuss it point by point, and I may not agree with you, but I, I, that we can, we can have that as a conversation or even a debate or an argument, but I don't have to burn your argument in order for me to win, that any time the followers of Jesus are so concerned with holding on to their power that I must destroy your writings rather than let your writings be heard and said, and here's my counter-argument or here's why I disagree or whatever, something is lost the moment we say the solution is let's start burning things. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we have collectively move beyond burning pieces of paper now. We don't tend to do that so much anymore. Um, but still that impulse of, I disagree with you, therefore what you have to say must be destroyed rather than... Mm-hmm. Again, it, sometimes it's a civil, pleasant conversation. Sometimes it's a more heated argument. But that's still... We all get to talk and we get to say things rather than, nope, I, I have to cover my ears and I won't even listen. That that becomes difficult. Even if you completely disagree with somebody, the ability to say, I need to hear what you have to say rather than I just must burn it. That I, I think something is lamentably lost when our gut impulse is this idea is so unpleasant to me I must burn it. Sarah, as you were talking about the women that we've lost through history that we don't know, I'm just thinking about um, you know, like the Katie Luthers and and these ladies were were all married to priests, but how Mm -hmm. many other women were married to priests and reformers that we don't have writings from, but just through the the relationship of marriage and just through the influence of, of being husband and wife, like how much of their voice may have influenced their husbands and, and their husband's theology. And we'll, we'll remember now. Or yeah. their sons, right? Yeah. Susanna was very much a huge influence on her sons. Yes, because I would tell you, John's wife was probably not an influence on him because they had a terrible marriage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Susanna was, you know, we don't really, we have some letters that she wrote to Samuel about being, you know, an idiot and getting in debtor's prison all the time and 
um, not taking care of his children and leaving her with ten kids. Um, but you know, she outside of that, she doesn't have you know a, an essay or a letter to somebody. Um, but definitely, you know, through John and Charles, we see all the things that she taught them growing up. Yep. So I'm just curious, you know, when we get to heaven someday, how many of these ladies we'll get to talk to and see what kind of influence they had that we will never know about this side of eternity. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> well, I um, hope you join us for a further conversation next time we gather around the microphone. Thanks, everybody, for listening here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.